if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, the beauty of the gospel is that God has saved us. He's freed us from the power and the penalty of sin. He's put us in Christ, who's now our life. So we've got to together, surrender our lives, say, our lives are yours, and we're your servants. It's not radical version of Christianity. This is biblical Christianity. It's what it means to be a follower of Christ. We don't call the shots. He calls the shots. The Radical Together Podcast, with teaching from David Platt. What factors make sin an especially difficult topic in our culture? It's never been popular to talk about sin and its terrible consequences, but without these truths, we have no good news to share. In this second gospel thread, The Sinfulness of Man, we're encouraged to identify the greatest problem faced by all men, women, boys, and girls, their rebellion and alienation from God because of sin. We must share this truth clearly and humbly so that people will see their need for a Savior. Here's David with a sermon entitled, The Sinfulness of Man, from Romans 3 and Romans 6. When you believe that Jesus died on a cross for our sins and he rose from the grave, was dead, and then three days later rose from the dead, so that anyone, everyone, who turns from their sin and trusts in him will be saved from eternal death to experience eternal life. When you believe that, it just makes sense to share that with other people around you. In fact, it would be the height of hate for us to believe that and then not say anything to people around us about it. So privatized faith in a resurrected Christ is practically inconceivable. So the whole purpose behind this thread's imagery is to encourage one another to fill natural conversations with supernatural truth. So to talk about the supernatural gospel in the context of natural conversations. So this doesn't have to be forced. It doesn't have to be weird. The picture is not every other phrase out of our mouths being, glory to God, praise be to God, glory to God. So our goal is not to be annoying. Our goal is to be authentic. And even this, this imagery of threads comes from brothers and sisters living in a Muslim context in the Middle East who told me that their whole goal was to weave threads of the gospel into the fabric of everyday conversations with Muslims around them, like different colors of a quilt, praying that one day God would open individuals' eyes to see the glory and the grace of God in Christ, this tapestry that had been woven in front of them. So we're looking for opportunities on a moment-by-moment basis to fill natural conversations with supernatural truth, all the while embodying the life of Christ as we talk about the love of Christ. So embody the life of Christ as you talk about the love of Christ. It makes no sense to be weaving gospel threads into our conversations while being selfish, moody, ornery, angry, lazy, and a host of other attitudes and actions that will actually undercut the gospel we're trying to Share. People long to see a demonstration of Christ that accompanies our explanation of Christ, right? So let's embody the life of Christ. May, may we be authentic in our words and our actions. So one, be authentic. Let's be second, obedient. Sharing the gospel leads to others' eternal salvation. Remember what we're talking about here. So listen to this story from a member in our faith family. She writes, My dad became a policeman as a young man with small children, eventually leaving that line of work for one with more freedom and less bosses, truck driving. 
He was a hard drinker and smoker, an alcoholic, not interested in parenting his children. And I was very vocal about my disgust with him throughout my teenage years. After I became a Christ follower in my mid-twenties, however, I felt compelled to humble myself in obedience to Christ, ask my dad to forgive me for being the daughter I had been to him, explaining the heart change God had just performed in me. This was the first thread. He, in return, asked for my forgiveness, which was amazing since he had never, ever admitted any wrongdoing. Over the years, he heard the gospel numerous times from me, from pastors, from godly men who were recovering alcoholics to no avail, or so I thought. But I know now these people over the last 30 years were used by God to keep weaving a tapestry of grace in front of him. Yet dad still didn't yield to Christ. Three years ago, my dad was forced to go into a nursing home, being unable to care for himself anymore. At that point, my husband and I became his caregivers, providing his practical needs and visiting him as much as we could, trying to help him see that chances were slipping away for him to be ready to meet God. But he would neither change, he would either change the subject or say he didn't want to talk about it. A few weeks ago, he started to sharply decline, and two weeks ago, my husband and I went to spend some time with him. Unbeknownst to one another, both my husband and I had put Dad's name at the top of our list that morning. So on that Sunday, my husband and I talked to Dad about Jesus almost the entire time, but still my dad was unwilling to repent. Then Tuesday afternoon, the nursing home called me to say my dad was very ill and his white blood count was extremely high. I drove to the hospital ER and spoke immediately to the doctor. After sending my dad for a CT scan of his abdomen, he called me out of his room and told me it's bad news. Dad had a perforated bowel and there was a big decision to make. My dad could take a chance on making it through surgery, but with his severe emphysema, he would likely never come off of the ventilator. If he elected not to have surgery, he would pass away within 24 to 48 hours. I told my dad what his two options were, and he said, I don't want to have surgery. I said, Dad, you know that you will meet Jesus very soon, don't you? He said he did. I then asked him if he wanted to receive Christ's forgiveness and salvation from the penalty of his sins, and for the first time in his life, my dad said yes. So dad prayed. He told God that he knew he was a sinner, and he asked God to save him based on Christ taking his place and punishment on the cross. Dad went into a coma about 90 minutes later and died the next afternoon. What an encouragement, she writes, to never ever give up praying and never ever stop weaving gospel threads. God is surely a merciful God of unfathomable magnitude. Sharing the gospel leads to others' eternal salvation. Do we realize what's at stake here? So so don't give up. Don't stop knowing that not one person on our list is guaranteed tomorrow. So share this gospel with urgency. Eternity is at stake here. But sharing the gospel doesn't just lead to others' eternal salvation, as if that's not important enough. But sharing the gospel also leads to our personal satisfaction. So is there anything more glorious, more joyful, more exhilarating in this life than seeing somebody we know and love, even somebody we just met, have their life turned upside down for all of eternity? What is more satisfying than this? To see my friend a couple of weeks ago turn from sin and trust in Christ with tears of eternal joy welling up in his eyes and mine. To hear this daughter's joy and seeing her dad saved. Just being obedient to God. Sharing the gospel. There is joy in obedience. The call to share the gospel is not just for others' good. The call to share the gospel is for our good. 
It's for our joy. So let me share this story. A mom writes, Our family was eating at Zaxby's, and my 10-year-old son told us that he had an idea for a Bible study. He wanted to share the gospel with some of his friends. So there at Zaxby's, he called us to prayer. We put down our food and held hands, and he said a few sentences from his heart to God. He was straight to the point. Lord, I have this idea. I want it to be about you. I pray for the courage to do it if it is from you. That's not an exact quote, but it's pretty close, she said, to what he prayed. Then on the way home, her son said, Mom, I keep hearing in my mind, it's okay, you can do this. I encouraged him. I told him he couldn't go wrong sharing God's word because it's God's purpose for his life. When we came home, he went straight to work. His idea was to share the gospel through Legos. He calls it Legos for the Lord. He wanted to read straight from God's word and then have his friends build things that were illustrations of what they were reading. He wanted to do the Gospel of Mark because that was the book we were reading together as a family, but he also wanted to start from the beginning of creation, so he read John 1 as well. He pre-made some of the Legos. For example, he made the letters Word, W-O-R-D, in white Legos. He made trees and animals, a cross, throne, mini figures, etc. He then took them apart, put them in Ziploc bags, and wrote an instruction sheet for each one. Then he built a stack of colored Legos that would help him explain the gospel. He called and invited six of his friends to come over. He followed up with reminder calls that Saturday before his first Bible study on Sunday, he had, a list of, he had a list of snacks for me to make. That was the only thing he needed from me. The rest he had all planned out. And this mom writes, I witnessed God do mighty things last Sunday. Two boys came, no doubt exactly who God wanted to be there. She watched as her 10-year-old son share the gospel with these two boys through Legos around her kitchen table. And she said, I am so thankful for the passion, courage, and follow-through that God has given my son. He plans to do this every Sunday afternoon through June. Don't tell me there's not joy in this. God, give us all faith of a 10-year-old in this faith family. It says, I got friends who don't know Jesus. They like to do this. How can I use what I like they like to share Jesus with them. So for our joy, let's not waste our lives in casual, comfortable, cultural, keep Christ to yourself religion that misses the whole point of Christianity and misses the joy God has designed for us. Let's be obedient and let's be bold. Remember, this is what the Spirit of God is in us for. Spirit of God in us. The Spirit of God empowers us to speak. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be witnesses. You'll be testifiers to truth and love. The Spirit of God is in you, Christian, not to make you silent, but to cause you to speak. The Spirit of God empowers us to speak and the gospel of God has the power to save. Do we believe this? The beauty of the gospel, what God has done for us in Christ, when we speak this, so you'd speak it, threads of the gospel. You're speaking them. There is supernatural power accompanying those words. Power to draw people to Christ. Nothing else we speak has this kind of power. That's why Paul said in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Christian, this gospel was spoken to you and you believed. And when it was spoken, God in the Spirit did something in your heart. When you speak it to others, God's going to do something in people's hearts. Do we believe this? I think many times we don't. If we're honest, our default is almost to think, oh, this person doesn't want to hear this. Or they'll, they'll never respond to this. 
They, they, don't, they don't have interest in the gospel. Give glory to God that such thoughts did not stop someone from sharing the gospel with you. And give glory to God by refusing to let such thoughts keep you from sharing the gospel with others. Such thoughts deny the very power of Christ in the gospel. And all this leads directly to the thread we're diving into tonight, the sinfulness of man. So last week we talked about the character of God, the holy, just, and gracious creator of all things. We talked about how to weave his character, his holiness, his justice, his grace into the fabric of our everyday conversations. So now let's think about the second thread, the second component of the gospel, the sinfulness of man. Knowing this gospel thread, it's in the threads booklet. Here's the the, overarching truth. We are each created by God, but we are all corrupted by sin. We're each created by God, but we are all corrupted by sin. So this truth is answering the question, who am I, that's on the front of that thread's booklet. And it's a question that's central in every world religion. So what does the gospel say about who we are? And specifically, what does the gospel say about what's wrong in the world? Any reasonable person can look around us in the world and realize things are not the way they're supposed to be. In every religion, every worldview, from atheism and agnosticism to Hinduism and Islam, has to answer this question. And the gospel diagnoses the human condition with a paradox that I'm convinced rings loudly true in every single one of our lives. So see the dignity and the depravity of man, humanity, in this one statement. We're each created by God, but we're all corrupted by sin. So we're created by God in the image of God, the Bible says, in a way that separates us as men and women from animals and nature and everything else in all creation. We have the capacity for rational thought. We have the capacity for moral choice. We have a conscience by which we discern good and evil. And we have an ability to choose between the two. We have a capacity for hard work and artistic creativity. We're innovative. We're imaginative. We create. We construct. We draw. We build. We dream. We dance. We write. We make music. And we have a capacity for social relationships. We long for love. All of these unique capacities that separate us apart from everything else in creation. Yet amidst all these dignified traits that we have in the image of God, we also have a capacity for evil in us. Yes, we're able to think, choose, create, and love. But we're also able to hate, covet, fight, and kill. John Stott said human beings are the inventors of hospitals for the care of the sick and of universities for the acquisition of wisdom. But they have also invented torture chambers, concentration camps, and nuclear arsenals. This is the paradox of our humanness, he writes. We are both noble and ignoble, both rational and irrational, both moral and immoral, both creative and destructive, both loving and selfish, both godlike and bestial. And it's true of all of us. And this is key. This is huge. How we diagnose the human condition, including the human problem here, will have everything to do with how we discern the solution to that problem. How we identify what we need most. So follow with me. See how the gospel diagnoses the human condition. People created by God, but corrupted by sin. What does that mean, corrupted by sin? Well, it means, first, that we have rebelled against God. Romans chapter 3, verse 12. You've got 
here, open to Romans chapter 3. You might underline verse 12, memorize verse 12. At the end of an exhaustive treatment of the sinfulness of man, Romans 3.12 says, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now that is a stinging indictment of humanity. Some would say an unfair indictment. No one does good. I mean, really, no one? Well, the key to understanding what that means at the end of the verse is going back to the beginning of the verse when the Bible says, All have turned aside. And this is where we realize what it means that no one does good. It means that no one has glorified God as God. All of us have rejected God as God. In each of our lives, we have rebelled against God. This is the picture of sin from the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve. We see there is what we see in our own hearts. Even if God said not to eat fruit from that tree, we're going to do it anyway. He is not Lord of, over us. We do whatever we want. This is the God who beckons storm clouds and they come. This is the God who says to the wind and the rain, you blow there, you fall there, and they obey immediately. This is the God who says to mountains, you stop here, seas, you stop there, and they obey. Everything in all creation responds in obedience to the Creator until you get to men and women, and we have the audacity to look this God in the face and say, no. We have all turned away from God to ourselves. And this is the essence of sin, self. God's order is we put him first, neighbor, others second, and ourselves last. Sin inverts that completely. Ourselves first, neighbor, others second, usually to the extent with which they can help ourselves. And God, if anywhere, a distant third. We have all turned away from God's ways to our own ways. All of us have turned away from God's worship to our own worship. Now, we probably wouldn't put it that way. No one would naturally want to say, well, I worship myself. But just look around at our lives and just listen to our vocabulary. Literally hundreds of words that start with self. Self Self-centered, self-esteem, self-confidence, self-advertisement, self-gratification, self-glorification, self-pity, self-applause, self-will, self-motivation, on and on and on. Apparently we need a rich vocabulary to express the extent of our preoccupation with ourselves. Now this manifests itself in many ways. But I want to point out two general ways that our rebellion against God, turning away from God to ourselves, manifests itself. One, our rebellion against God is often manifested in self-indulgence. And this is what I'll call the irreligious. Many people rebel against God by living life however they want, according to their own rules. They delight, in a sense, in breaking all the rules, doing whatever they want, indulging whatever pleasures, whatever pursuits, whatever possessions, whatever it is our heart desires. We're running after it. And this self-indulgence, plays out in all kinds of different ways, particularly in a wealthy culture like ours. But then, there is an equally sinful, maybe even more dangerous expression of our rebellion against God that is manifested in self-righteousness. These are the people I'll call the religious. Whether in Christianity or many other religions in the world, these are the people that try to do whatever God wants. 
These are the people who strive for good, strive for God by keeping all the rules. And they assume that if they live, and many supposed Christians fall into this category, many professing, follow this, many professing Christians live their entire lives assuming, believing that if they live morally, then God will bless and save them. If they pray, if they read the Bible, if they worship, then God will bless and save them. But don't miss this. Even that is actually rebellion against God because this involves living in an attempt to save yourself. You're just doing it through good works for God. And self-righteousness like that misses the gospel just as much as self-indulgence does. And all of us fall into one or both of these categories, maybe at different times. The core problem in all of our lives, whether we love to break the rules or we try to keep the rules, is that it's all about us. We have turned away from God to ourselves. And we thought this would be good for us. We thought this would be wise for us. We thought we knew what we wanted whether it was in self-indulgence or self-righteousness, we thought this would lead to our good. But what we didn't realize is that what we thought would lead to freedom has led each of us into slavery. Jesus said in John 8, 34, I tell you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. Romans 6 later talks about how apart from Christ we are slaves to impurity and lawlessness. We're slaves to this rebellion in us. And it makes sense when you think about it. All right, so let me... Let me give a clear example, easy example. An alcoholic, slave or free? Slave, without question. Alcoholic begins drinking, thinking that this is the path to freedom and satisfaction. But before they know it, that path to freedom and satisfaction is actually enslaving them on a road that leads to ruin. Now that seems easy to recognize. What we need to realize is that all sin works exactly the same way. For some it may be lust. For others it may be pride. For some it may be anger. For others it may be the effort to climb the corporate ladder, to have the nicer possessions, to experience the greater luxuries. We run after things in this world, temptations in this world, thinking that we're free, thinking that this is where we're finally going to be happy in her, in him, in this achievement or that accomplishment, in that state, when we get to that situation. But what we don't realize is that we're blinded to our own bondage engrossed in a bottomless quest where the drinks will never fully satisfy, the lusts will never fully gratify, the ego will never be stroked enough, the anger will never be pacified enough, and all our pursuits of joy and freedom and the passions, pleasures, and possessions of this world are only symptoms of a deeper slavery where we are rebelling against the only one who is truly able to satisfy our souls. And lest any one of us think we're immune to these things, this is even more vicious when it comes to self-righteousness because we convince ourselves that if we pray enough, worship enough, and do enough good things, then this will cancel out the other. The reality is, no matter how much good we do, and this is the second part of this thread, no matter how much good we do, the reality is, as a result of our rebellion against God, we are separated from God. Romans chapter 3, a little further down, verse 23. Underline this verse. Memorize this verse. All have sinned, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
So this is the point of this imagery here. It's intended to picture on the back of this threads book that you might look at a, a falling short, a separation from God. Because of our sin against God, we're separated from God. Now it's obviously, you look on the back there, this is obviously all, all drawn out here. But if I were drawing this from the beginning, this is why it's numbered the way it is. I would start with number one there. God is holy. He's perfect, pure, and good. He is infinitely good. And then number two, we've rebelled against God, putting us over here, this side. Leading to number three, we're separated from God. All of us in sin are separated from God. And we know this instinctively inside our hearts. We know that the way the Bible diagnoses the human condition is true. Think about the effects of sin in our lives. The varied ways that sin has separated us from God. You look back at Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, and you will see in that initial entrance of sin into the world, three emotional reactions to sin that are familiar to every one of us in this room. The varied effects of sin. One is guilt. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, the Bible says they realized they were naked. They were, there was an immediate loss of innocence. And such guilt is a universal emotion that we have all experienced. Knowing right and wrong and knowing that we are guilty of wrong in our lives. Now there are some people who try to deny that there's such a thing as right and wrong. But even they are trapped by the conscience that God has written on their hearts. They set out to prove that there's no such thing as right and wrong, that all ethics are relative and arbitrary, but they wind up saying that it's right for you to agree with them and wrong for you to disagree with them. No one can successfully erase the sense of ought that God has written on our hearts. Everyone senses he or she ought to do certain things and not others. And the failure to do what we ought leads to what we call guilt. And there are all kinds of ways that we have come up with to try to overcome guilt. There are intellectual ways. We convince ourselves. We've just placed unrealistic expectations on ourselves. Of course we fail and do wrong, but we're only human, and it's unreasonable to expect anything less than that. So lower your expectations, and you'll lower your level of guilt. Or maybe there's the approach... We go to say moral principles are outdated. You can solve your guilt problem if you stop living in the ethical dark ages. So greed is not a bad thing. It's part of ambition. Exalting yourself is the path to success. So don't feel bad about it. Lust is natural for men and women. Sex is expected regardless of ma marriage. And the list goes on and on. We solve our guilt problem by redefining what's right and what's wrong. And there's physical ways. We may use drinking or drugs to escape our guilt. Or maybe it's not that extreme. Maybe we make ourselves so busy that we don't have time to think about or address our guilt. Maybe we devote ourselves to games and hobbies and sports so we can make light of our guilt. Or maybe we keep the TV or the music or the internet on all day or night is a constant barrage of sound and sight and information that will guard us from the silence of a guilty soul. Or maybe, most dangerous of all, as we've talked about, we cover up guilt with our religion. 
Maybe we recognize what intellectual, physical strategies for covering guilt ignore, that the ultimate cause of guilt is that there's a broken relationship with God. And so the means, we think then, for dealing with guilt is appeasing God with good works. So we placate God with religious performance, thinking that we can balance this thing out. Yet deep down inside, despite all of our zealous efforts, we know that guilt still separates us from God. And not just guilt, but shame. A second emotional reaction to sin in Genesis 3 is Adam and Eve immediately tried to cover themselves. Honor before God is lost. We who were created in the image of God have seen that image marred by sin. And there is shame before God in sin, leading to a third emotional reaction of fear. Adam and Eve found themselves hiding from God, afraid of appearing before God in accountability for sin. A fear that's echoed around the world in all kinds of ways. And animistic and tribal peoples I've been among, I've seen this expressed in dances and prayers and festivals and sacrifices to appease various spirits and gods, witch doctors and priests. In villages like this hold spiritual sway over entire peoples who are captivated by fear. And it may look different for us, but there's no question that we have fears of sickness and pain and disease and disaster, fears of failure and loneliness and emptiness, and ultimately the fear of death. These things that pervade our lives. Woody Allen joked about it. He said, it's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. But later, when his comedic guard was down, he said the fundamental thing behind all motivation and all activity is the constant struggle against annihilation and death. It's absolutely stupefying in its terror, and it renders anyone's accomplishments meaningless. Again, we do all that we can to deny these effects of sin, to cover them up, to say that our sin is not that big of a deal. But the Bible is clear that what we think, what we try to convince ourselves is a relatively minor issue, is actually an infinitely major problem. We, th- we think, well, we're not that bad. And as soon as we think that, we expose this lie that is lurking within our hearts, that sinfulness is relative. And certainly, there are many worse sinners out there than I am, you know, terrorists and murderers and a whole host of people that are far worse than me and they're nowhere near church. But this is where we realize that we are very deceived in our thinking because we are thinking about sin as it relates to each other instead of thinking about sin as it relates to God. The reality is one sin, no matter how small we might try to classify it, one sin against an infinitely holy God warrants infinite separation from God. One sin, you think about it, just one sin involves looking God in the face and saying, your law is not good. My judgment is better. Your authority does not apply in my life. I am above your jurisdiction and I defy you. I insult your holiness. That's what's involved in one sin. And we in this room combined together have committed millions of those. What we think is a relatively minor issue is actually an infinitely major problem. You, you look at the back of this Threads booklet and you put all this together. Number one, God is holy. Perfectly good, perfectly pure, incomparable in glory. 
We, number two, have rebelled against God. Number three, we're separated from God. You say, well, why doesn't God just forgive us? Why doesn't he just bring us back to himself? After all, God is loving, right? And God is loving. He's infinitely loving. We'll get to that in a minute. But look at this next characteristic of God, especially if you missed last week. Follow here. Number four, God is just. He's a good judge. Proverbs 17, 15, God justifies the innocent and God condemns the guilty. God is a good judge, and because he's just, he must condemn the guilty. So, are you and I innocent or guilty before this God? We're guilty. Every one of us guilty of sin before an infinitely just God, and therefore worthy of warranting infinite eternal condemnation from God. This is what his justice requires. This is why we said last week that forgiveness is for God the profoundest of problems. For at the moment, God says to guilty sinners, you're innocent. He compromises his own character and he's no longer God, just and righteous and holy. Remember, if a judge on the bench in our courtrooms today said to guilty criminals who came before him, you're innocent. I'll look over that. I'll look over that. You're innocent. Oh, I I love you. I'll look over that. We would have that judge off the bench in a heartbeat. Why? Because he's not just So why would we think that God, the perfectly good and right and just judge of the universe, could do anything different than say to infinitely guilty sinners, you are infinitely guilty? That leads then to number five. We are therefore dead without God. Dead. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. You turn over three chapters. Underline this verse in your Bible. Memorize it if it's not already memorized. This last verse in Romans chapter 6. For the wages of sin, the payment of sin, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we'll get to the second part in a moment. But consider the first part. The payment of sin is death. Oh, what we thought would lead to freedom has only led to slavery. What we think is a relatively minor issue is actually an infinitely major problem. And ultimately, in our sin, what we thought would lead to life has led each of us to death. Expressed in two primary ways. One, eventual physical death. Remember that physical death was not a part of the original picture in Genesis 1 and 2. Physical death entered the world as a result of sin. We die because we're sinners. But even that is not primarily what Romans 6.23 is talking about. Romans 6.23 is not merely talking about eventual physical death. Romans 6.23 is talking about eternal spiritual death. In our sin, we are separated from God. Not just now, but forever. Because we have committed even just one sin before an infinitely holy God, because he's just, we warrant infinitely eternal sentence. We are dead without God. Dead in our sins, Ephesians 2, 1 says. And don't miss this. Please don't miss this. As a result of our deadness and sin, we are completely unable to save ourselves. How can someone who's dead bring himself to life? How many of you, before you were born, decided, I think I'd like to be born right now? It's impossible to give yourself life. 
That has to happen from outside of you. Someone, something has to happen to you to cause this to happen. Now we're getting to the core of the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. You cannot save yourself. We cannot save ourselves. No matter how much we pray, no matter how much we study the Bible, how much we go to church and worship, no matter how much good we do in the world, we are dead without God. And we need Him to give us life. And praise be to God, this is what He does in the gospel. Number five on the back of this Threads booklet, we're dead without God, eternally condemned by a just God. Then go back over to number six. God is gracious. Titus chapter two, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. God has sent his son, Jesus, to pay the price for our sins, to die in our place, so that when we turn from ourselves and our sins and trust in what Jesus has done as our Savior and Lord, we will be restored to God forever. Getting ahead of myself because that's like the rest of the series, but... We can't, we can't just stop here. I've prayed that there would be people in this room tonight at this moment that would get this, really get this for the first time. That there would be religious, professing Christians in this room who at this moment get this for the first time today. You see sin before God for what it is as something that cannot be placated by religious routine, even zealous religious routine. And that some who might classify themselves as irreligious might get this for the first time tonight. So get this. We have rebelled against God. We have turned away from God to ourselves. And we are separated from him. Guilt, shame, and fear in our lives intended to wake us up to this reality. And because God is just, we are condemned before him in our sin, dead. And no amount of work on your part, no amount of work on my part can overcome our deadness. But that's the beauty. God has done in Jesus what we can never do for ourselves. So tonight, tonight I urge you, Turn from your sin and yourself and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord, his love for you, his lordship over you, and be freed from your sin and reconciled to God forever. You say, now, what did you say I had to do for that to become a reality? It's been done for you. What do you do? You trust in what's been done for you. You believe in the love and the grace that God has shown to you, his pursuit of you. The gospel is not inviting anybody in this room to meet God in the middle halfway. The gospel is saying God has come fully to right where you are in your sin and in your pursuit of satisfaction and all the things of this world. And he has said, I will, I will save you from your sin and I will satisfy your soul. So I pray that tonight might be the night where many might get this and, and trust in Christ. And at the same time, I pray, Christian, that in being reminded of this, we would realize that if we're going to share the gospel effectively, we've got to diagnose the human condition correctly. 
So if our problem is just that we've messed up, we've done some wrong things, then any old religion with a list of things to do will suffice. But if our problem is that we're dead without God, then only the gospel of God's grace will suffice. This is why Francis Schaeffer said, I've used this quote before, he was asked, what would you do if, a mod- if you met a modern man on a train and you had just one hour to talk to him about the gospel? He replied, I would spend 45 to 50 minutes on the negative to really show him his dilemma, that he is morally dead. Then I'd take 10 to 15 minutes to preach the gospel. I believe that much of our evangelistic and personal work today is not clear simply because we are too anxious to get to the answer without having a man realize the real cause of his sickness, which is true moral guilt and not just psychological guilt feelings in the presence of God. There is so much that's being sold today in the name of Christianity that is nothing less than, nothing more than Christian self-help. Says you're inherently good and Christ will help make you better. It's not true. Yes, we're each created by God, we're corrupted by sin, and we're dead without God, and we need Him not to come alongside our self esteem and self confidence and pick us up. The whole point of the gospel is that we embrace the sinfulness that's in our hearts, and in the process, we find ourselves free to embrace the Savior who can free us completely from sin in ourselves. So we've got to get this right when we share the gospel. Which then begs the question, well, how do you weave this gospel thread into conversations at work? You just go out to people at the water cooler and say, you are dead. You need to be saved from yourself. You know, most people don't think they need to be saved by, from anything. At that moment, the only thing they think they need to be saved from is you. So how do you weave this gospel thread? And, and we're, we'll run through these quickly. But remember, the purpose here is just to get us thinking of ways. Like, I've been thinking of more ways this afternoon, but I don't have time. But I mean, next time. But, but how, how, do, how do we weave this gospel thread? Well, first, before we even get to sin and deadness and rebellion, first speak respectfully to, to and about all people as individuals created in the image of God. So we've, we've talked about we're each created by God. And this is a reminder that, yes, we're sinful, but there's also much evidence of God's goodness in all people. So we speak to and about other people as individuals individuals fearfully and wonderfully made by God himself. This applies to the way we talk to and about our spouse, our boss, the president of our country, and terrorists in other countries for that matter. We undercut the gospel when we speak disrespectfully to and about people created in the image of God. Gossip always kills gospel proclamation. Kills it. And look intentionally for opportunities to encourage others by the grace of God. God's grace is all over other people, all over Christians and non-Christians around us. So build up other people, especially created by God. Even the people in your workplace who drive you nuts, build them up. Let our speech continually reflect an acknowledgement of God's grace and the people around us. Created by God. And then, so yes, each created by God, all corrupted by sin. So all people corrupted by sin, slaves to sin, dead in sin, blinded to truth. And this is where I, I just want to remind us. So think about what we've just discussed, just seen. We are speaking to people about the gospel who rebelled against God, who were separated from God, and who are dead without God. We should expect people in such a condition to be hard to the gospel. 
sometimes to put up walls against the gospel of the Sharon. Not to be shocked by that. Not to be surprised by that. We were once there ourselves in our own hearts. But the power of God did what only he could do. So just as God is the only one who can save us, remember, God is the only one who can draw others to himself as well. And so as we share this gospel with people who rebelled against God, separated from God, and are dead without God, we share this gospel in confident dependence on God to do what we could never do ourselves. So speak, share confidently in view of the regenerating power of God. The God who has the power to create also has the power to recreate. And this gives us confidence in sharing the gospel. Not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in God. So you can go to the hardest hearts in your office or on your campus. To the men and women who want nothing whatsoever to do with God. You can go to the darkest, unreached people group on the planet whose mindset and culture for generations has been set against the gospel. And you can speak this gospel. And in the power of the Spirit of God, He's going to bring people from death to life. So, So... Don't be afraid then to talk about sin. The question is, how do we do it? Well, when it comes to talking about a rebellion, acknowledge the reality of sin in and around you. So let's start by calling sin, sin. We've come up with all kinds of terms to replace sin in the names of what's politically correct or psychologically accepted. And there's a whole can of worms that could be opened here that I'm going to try to keep closed. But... But we call worry, obsessive stress or compulsiveness. We call adultery an affair. We call sinful anxiety simple stress. We blame all kinds of evil on prescriptions that the world has given us to cover over and mask the reality of sin in our hearts. So let's acknowledge the reality of sin in and around us. And not just the reality, but the root of sin in and around us. When something goes wrong in our life, or when something goes wrong in the world around us, or somebody else's life, and we're talking about, maybe even talking about how to fix it, don't let the conversation stay on the surface. So talk, go to the core. Every sin is rooted in the heart. Yes, there may be a particular action, particular deed, something that's said, something that's done, but at the core of that action, there's a heart that's saying, I want what I want more than what God wants. I don't believe God's word. I don't desire what God desires. There's belief. There's desires at the root of sin. So acknowledge that root of rebellion in our hearts that keeps us from obeying God. This is so key in parenting, right? Children do something. There's There's a belief. There's something at the root here in their heart that's causing this to happen. So look, not just for kids that way, look at culture that way. Acknowledge the root of sin in and around us. And as we speak about sin... Let's speak honestly, specifically speak honestly about our propensity to sin. Your propensity to sin, my propensity to sin. Whether it's your child or your colleague who's caught in doing something wrong, it's important to say to them, I am prone to sin as well. And to be very careful not to be selective in the sin that we talk about. It's easy to talk about sins that we don't struggle with. Talk about this or that form of self-indulgence all the while blind to our own self-righteousness. So talk about sin in all of its forms. And talk about sin in light of its force. I talk about sin with humility because you know you've experienced and you and I are prone to its disastrous effects in our lives. Sin destroys. 
Which leads to talking about our separation. Speak humbly about the seriousness of sin. Don't joke about sin in your life or in anybody else's life. Don't treat sin lightly in any form or fashion. Don't joke about temptation. I'm just gluttonous. Don't say things like that. As if that's not an infinite offense before God. Let our conversations be permeated with the seriousness of sin. And when we sin, and there are consequences we see from that, or when we see consequences of sin in the world around us, let's not minimize those consequences. Let's recognize those consequences as the seriousness sin causes. And then let the effects of sin, guilt, shame, and fear, inform the way you talk about salvation. So this is... This is beautiful. We'll talk about this more in a couple of weeks. But, but we've, we've talked about these three effects of sin, guilt, shame, and fear. And the gospel addresses each of them in wonderful ways. So let these effects of sin, these emotional reactions to sin, trigger us taking those emotional reactions to sin and bridging to the gospel. So in conversations about guilt, when you, when you are experiencing guilt, when others are experiencing guilt, then look for opportunities to build a bridge and begin talking about forgiveness in Christ. The guilty can be forgiven in Christ. In conversations about shame, look for opportunities to talk about honor in Christ. So in Christ, our sins are not just forgiven. In Christ, our honor before God is restored. What a beautiful picture. We go from dirty to clean, from shame to honor, from despair to joy before God. And then... In conversations about fear, talk about freedom in Christ from those fears. So talk about the gospel in terms that address sin and its various effects. And finally, talking about our deadness. So what does this look like? Well, in obvious ways, whenever the topic of death comes up in the world, which it inevitably will, how do we speak? Russ Moore said, at a funeral, the church is perhaps at its most theological. So how do we talk about death? How do we respond first to the death of non-Christians. And my encouragement here is for us to talk about the death of people who don't know Christ, who didn't know Christ when they died. First, with appropriate honor. So it is never, never right, God-honoring, to denigrate someone in their death. Even the worst of people, as we've seen, are created in the image of God and given grace from God. So speak with appropriate honor with biblical honesty, meaning we have to guard against this dangerous temptation that comes out, particularly here in the religious South, when it comes to death, to start talking like everybody goes to heaven. You go to funerals around here and all of a sudden everybody becomes a universalist. It's dangerous and deceptive. And it's not true. People who die in their sin, who have not trusted in Jesus as Savior, followed Him as Lord, they die eternal spiritual death. Now obviously, no one but God ultimately knows the state of a person's heart. So we speak with personal humility, knowing that whether it's a thief on a cross or an 80-year-old man, 90 minutes before he goes into a coma. And who knows what man or woman might turn to Christ in that last moment. So we speak with personal humility, but we know that if they did not, then they died apart from God. 
So speak then with a heartbreaking anguish over the death of a sinner separated from God forever. And with life-giving resolve to urgently spend your life spreading the gospel to others like them before it's too late. And then respond to the death of Christians with profound sorrow. So to have confidence in the gospel does not mean that we are glibly happy and smiling when a brother or sister dies. No, we are profoundly sorrowful. We weep. To not do this would be to undercut the gospel because we know that death is a result of sin in a fallen world and we hate sin and we hate death. But at the same time, we speak with abiding joy because this person knew the king who conquered death. And even though they died, John chapter 11, verse 25, even now they live. So we speak with sincere worship to God and unshakable hope for others because we know that this world is not all there is. And then talking about our deadness, constantly pointing in conversation to our dependence on God. We live in a self-sufficient, self-sustaining world. And anybody who lives like they can't do it on their own, like they need God, looks different than anybody else, everybody else. This is weakness in most people's eyes. This goes totally against the self-made mantra of our day. But it is gospel. So let the words, I need God for this, or I need God to do this, let those words be an everyday occurrence in your language. For this is the picture of God's grace in the gospel. Constantly point to our dependence on God and constantly point to our desperation for God. We don't have breath at the end of this service if God doesn't give it to us. And that changes the way we talk. So, so let's pray. Let's pray, Christian, for opportunities to weave this thread of the gospel into our conversations all week long and particularly with those who don't know Christ. Let's look intentionally for opportunities to weave the character of God, sinfulness of of man into our conversations. And, and, And for those of you who mentioned a couple of points who are not followers of Christ, have not trusted in Christ, I invite you to see yourself for who you are before God and see God for what he has done for you and trust in his mercy towards you tonight and be changed by his grace for all eternity. Everything and all creation responds in obedience to the Creator until you get to man. And you and I have the audacity to look at God in the face and say, no. That's a powerful word. The sinfulness of man, what we often think of as a relatively minor issue, is actually an infinitely major problem. Next week, we move from the sinfulness of man into the sufficiency of Christ. So be sure to tune in here on the Radical Podcast, as well as check out our recent blog articles on evangelism by visiting our website, Radical.net. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. We'll see you next week.